Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is the Horror Shots Podcast. The known is finite, the unknown infinite. Intellectually, we stand on an islet in the midst of an illimitable ocean of inexplicability. Thomas Henry Huxley. Hello again and welcome back to another Horror Shots podcast with me, Casey. As always, I gotta get some housekeeping out of the way, so I'm gonna mention my Patreon as per usual. So if you do want to support me in ways other than just straight up listening, which is still my favorite way for you to kind of support me and interact with me. But if you want to give a little bit more, say, financially to help things move a little more smoothly, you can do so at patreon.com slash horror shots. Also, don't forget to check out my website at horrorshotsblog.wordpress.com. You can find me on Instagram at horrorshots uh, as well. You can also find me on Twitter at horrorshotspod. So I think those are all the big ones that are out of the way now. So if you want to follow me on any of those, feel free to do that. I will interact with you if you interact with me. Uh, I'm not going to go looking for you, but if you want to come find me, I will be more than happy to have a little back and forth, some banter, some chit chat, whatever you want to call it. It'll be good times. Now, I promised you last week that I would not do the Vampire Watchers handbook, and I am going to keep that promise, surprisingly enough. I'm going to go on to something else. I mentioned it last cast, and that is going to be cryptozoology. I'm going to look at more of the historical aspects of it right now, but we will get into the monsters and the myths and the legends a little bit later on, possibly next week. We'll see how fast we can get through the history and some of the scientific evidence and scientific exploration that has gone in to these cryptids over much of history. Of course, we do know that Bigfoot and Loch Ness Monster and Chupacabra are the big ones, but there are a whole lot of other ones out there. The Jersey Devil, the Mothman, a whole bunch of other different kind of creatures that you may not have ever even heard of potentially exist out in the real world. But uh, we will get into that a little bit later. Just wanted to preface the big names before we get into some of the boring sort of history stuff. Okay, so it's not actually boring. It's very interesting, as a matter of fact. Now, much of the information I do have here comes from a single website, which isn't the best research policy, but I found that they had everything kind of lined up in a nice timeline, a history, if you want to call it, of cryptozoology, and that comes from the Cryptid Wiki. And you can just search it if you want to look into it a little bit more yourself, or you can just listen to what I have to say. A lot of it's going to be read verbatim. I considered writing an entire script about it, but when they have everything so nice and concise, there's nothing much I can really take out or add that will really you know, enhance the experience. So we should just get started. Cryptozoology, meaning the study of hidden animals, is the scientific search for animals whose existence has not been proven. This includes looking for living examples of animals that are considered extinct, such as dinosaurs, animals whose existence lacks physical evidence, but which appear in myth and legends or are reported, such as Bigfoot and the Chupacabra, and wild animals drastically outside their normal geographic range, such as phantom cats, also known as big alien cats. The animals cryptozoologists study are often referred to as cryptids, 
a term coined by John Wall in 1983. The study of cryptids has a long, complex history spanning across several centuries until it became what it is today. The 15th century BC and Queen Hatshepsut expedition to the uncharted Red Sea. Historically known as the first oceanographic cruise, female Egyptian pharaoh Hatshepsut built a Red Sea fleet to facilitate trade between the head of the Gulf of the Aqaba and Point South as far as Punt, or uncharted regions of Africa, to bring mortuary goods to Karnak in exchange for Nubian gold. Hatshepsut personally made the most famous ancient Egyptian expedition that sailed to the Punt. During the reign of Queen Hatshepsut in the 15th century BC, ships regularly crossed the Red Sea in order to obtain goods. The fleet brought back several ships full of animals that were undiscovered and recorded prior to that event. Amongst the animals were a long-necked dragon now known scientifically as the giraffe, parrots, and an African unicorn recently discovered by cryptozoologists in the 1900s. That brings us to the 2nd century BC and Valmiki documents, or the prehistoric hominids. Valmiki wrote the Ramayana between the 4th and 2nd centuries BC, documenting several legendary creatures and life forms that allegedly lived millions of years ago. Mainly it focuses on the Vanaras, which were a group of monkey-like hominids in the Indian epic Ramayana who were brave and inquisitive by nature. The term Vanara can be described as forest dwellers. The epic Mahabharata describes them as forest-dwelling. The Sanskrit Pali epics of Southeast Asia mention several exotic creatures including ape-like hominids. Some Indians see this as proof of the historicity of their mythological creatures and as support for the prehistoric hominids in their texts. The Ramayana speaks of the Vanaras, an ape-like species with human intelligence that existed millions of years ago. However, according to the Ramayana, alongside these ape men existed modern humans as well. There are many versions as the Ramayana spread to many Asian countries outside of India, including Thailand, Burma, and Indonesia, Cambodia, Laos, and Philippines, and China as well. Vanaras are widely considered as the Asian Bigfoot. 77 AD brought us the Naturalis Historia. The natural history is written by Pliny the Elder. During his journeys across East Africa and India, Pliny tells of giant grasshoppers that's jagged legs were used as saws, and Cynocephalus, a dog-headed mammal, along with rhinos, man-cats or leopards, killing flies, fire-breathing basilisks, a giant salamander, and numerous insects unknown and undiscovered by anyone in Rome or the ancient world. Not only was Pliny's first attempt at studying insects, but it was also amongst the earliest examples of cryptozoology and thinking beyond the known science. Pliny the Elder died on August 25th, 79 AD, while attempting the rescue by ship of a friend and his family from the eruption of Mount Vesuvius that had just destroyed the cities of Pompeii and Herculaneum. The prevailing wind would not allow his ship to leave the shore. His companions attributed his collapse and death to toxic fumes, but they were unaffected by the fumes themselves, suggesting natural causes. This brings us to 1551 and Conrad Gessner and his findings on modern zoology. Conrad Gessner 
was born March 26, 1516, and died on the 13th of December in 1565. He was a Swiss naturalist and bibliographer. His five-volume, Historiae Animalium, is considered the beginning of modern zoology, and the flowering plant genus Genseria and his family, Gesnerechiae, are named after him. A genus of moth also follows suit being named after Conrad as well. He is denoted by his author abbreviation, Gessner, when cited as a botanical name. Historia Animalium, or the Histories of Animals, was published in Zurich during the 1550s and later again in the 1580s. It is an encyclopedia of work and an inventory of the Renaissance of Zoology by Conrad Gessner. He was a doctor and professor at the Carolinum, which was the precursor of the University of Zurich. It is the first modern zoological work that attempts to describe all the animals known to man and the first bibliography of natural history writings. The first five volumes of the Natural History of Animals consists of more than 4,500 pages. Now there are some animals, or even cryptids, that are listed in this book, the History of Animals, essentially, and they range from a whole lot of different things that are known and unknown to man. And I'll just list some of the examples that they have here. They have everything from prehistoric fossils to African rhinos, unicorns, hellhounds, sea monks, sea monsters, beavers, lions, hydras, rays or skates like manta rays, dragons, mermaids, kraken, sky serpents, armadillo, and porcupine. So you can see how the evolution of science has taken place. We can see that on this list of known cryptids at the time, or that's kind of an oxymoron, known cryptids, but what were believed to be cryptids at the time are real things. Lions and beavers on there are mixed into the same group as hydras and dragons and mermaids. So it just goes to show how far we've come in classifying different animals and species and breeds and genus and kingdoms and phylum and all those different things. It's a big mess. And I remember biology from college. Don't think I don't. Okay, remember some of it. Anyway, we should move on now to 1809 and Charles Darwin. Charles Robert Darwin, whose publication of The Origin of the Species first poised that all life has evolved over time from one common ancestor. Evolution has always been a hot topic amongst people, especially those religious folk. So I'm not going to get into the finer details of it, other than that I do believe that it's science, therefore you can't really go wrong with science. It wasn't written in a book that people believe to be real. It was actually researched, and all the science in it has been more or less proven to be true. But we'll move on from that, we'll just continue focusing on the cryptozoological part of Charles Darwin's life. Now, while Darwin didn't exactly study or search for cryptids, his search for the origin of species and the origin of everything kind of brought him along to some interesting discoveries along the way. So that kind of makes him a little bit of a cryptozoologist, but there is one creature named after him. It's called the Mylodon Darwini, and it's named, of course, after Charles Darwin. Now, Darwin was, of course, born on February 12th, 1809, and died on April 19th, 1882. Darwin is, of course, remembered as the English naturalist who theorized and first published in grand fashion that all species of life have evolved over time from one common ancestor through the process called natural selection. He'd have to have lived under a rock not to have heard of the origin of species. Or Darwin as a whole. He's world famous, and there's a whole 
quote unquote theory based around his name and Darwinianism and all that sort of fun stuff. But let's move on to the year 1811 and the first scientific documented Sasquatch. Bet you didn't know there was any documentation of Sasquatch besides some potentially hoaxed videos or counterfeit footprints. Story goes, the stories of an ape-like creature roaming the forests of North America have been around as long as the Native American tribes started settling in certain areas. And we know this due to the finding of cave paintings of what are perceived to be Sasquatches. However, the earliest written account wasn't made until 1811 by David Thompson, who was mapping regions of Canada and the United States during that time. There's a quote here, and you know I love some quotage. Spokans, which I believe are people in Washington area, Vancouver, BC, that sort of west coast, believe in a race of giants which inhabit certain mountains off to the west of us. David Thompson wrote that. Thompson spoke of the Spokanes and the local native tribes in the Washington state. See, I know what I'm talking about after all. I hadn't read that far yet. I'm going all this with you. I like to keep it fresh. I don't like to prepare so much. It gives a little more of a flair or it's laziness, one or the other. But I was right about the Washington state West Coast thing. According to Thompson, the Spokanes told him of a race of hairy giants that lived in one of the nearby mountains possibly Mount St. Helens or the Cascade Mountains that would steal salmon and people while they were asleep, similar to the Ostman story of 1924. I'll get to that one maybe a little bit later, maybe on the next cast, we'll, we'll see. The Ostman story is a kind of a fascinating one. That was also the first time a footprint was mentioned for a big foot. Thompson said that the giants, quote-unquote giants, left footprints one and a half feet long, David Thompson was a British-Canadian fur trader and surveyor and map maker, known to some natives as Cuckoo Sint, or the Stargazer. Over his career, he mapped over 3.9 million square kilometers of North America, and for this has been described as the world's greatest land geographer. In 1815, Thompson moved his family to Williamstown, Upper Canada, and a few years later was employed to survey the newly established borders with the United States from the Lake of the Woods to the eastern township of Quebec. In 1843, Thompson completed his atlas of the region from the Hudson Bay to the Pacific Ocean. And for those of you who don't know, that is a very, very long way. Canada is a large country, and Hudson Bay is mm, kind of on the eastern side of the country, and obviously the Pacific is on the western side of the country. So he surveyed a very large portion. And as you can see, which was mentioned before, 3.9 million square kilometers. That is a lot of space to cover, so this man has seen a lot of things over his career and his life. Now, as we move on into more modern history, we have 1925, and Roy Chapman Andrews scientifically observes the dragon tiger. The Maltese tiger, or blue tiger, is reported but unproven as a cryptid. Reported mostly in the Fujian province of China... Around 1910, Harry Caldwell, an American missionary and big game hunter, spotted and hunted a blue tiger outside of Fuzhou. His search is chronicled in his book, Blue Tiger, which was 1924, and by his hunting companion, Roy Chapman Andrews, and his camps and trails in China, which was published in 1925, and it chronicles exactly in Chapter 7. Chapman cites Caldwell thus, The markings of the beast are strikingly beautiful. The ground color is of a delicate shade of Maltese, changing into light gray-blue on the underparts. The stripes are well-defined and look like those of the ordinary yellow tiger. 
Now we kind of come into the birth of cryptozoology, as we know it today anyway. In 1955, Bernard Huvelmans invents the term cryptozoology. The coining of the word cryptozoology is often attributed to Belgian-French zoologist Bernard Huvelmans. Though, Hubelmans attributes coinage of the term to the late Scottish explorer and adventurer Ivan T. Sanderson. Hubelmans' 1955 book on the track of the unknown animals traces the scholarly origins of the disciplines to the Anthony Cornelius Oudmans and his 1892 study, The Great Sea Serpent. Hubelmans argued that cryptozoology should be undertaken with scientific rigor, but with an open mind and interdisciplinary approach. He also stressed that attention should be given to local, urban, and folkloric sources regarding such creatures, arguing that while often layered in unlikely and fantastic elements, folktales can have small grains of truth and important information regarding undiscovered organisms. Phantom cats, an example of living animals supposedly found outside their normal range, are a common subject of cryptozoological interest, largely due to the relative likelihood of the existence in comparison to fantastical cryptids lacking any evidence in existence such as, say, the Mothman. Moving on, we have 1959 and Carl Schuker, Born and Exotic Zoology Published. Carl Schuker, who was born in 1959, is a British zoologist and cryptozoologist who has written a few books as well. He currently lives in the Midlands, England, which is Birmingham, Aston Villa, of which I am a fan. Go Villa. Side note, sorry. Tangent, it happens sometimes. As a trained zoologist, Schuker is known for his contributions to the field of cryptozoology, bringing public attention to recently discovered or rediscovered species in the 12th and 21st centuries, and for his published works in the discipline. A columnist in 14 Times, a contributor to various magazines, Schuker is also the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Cryptozoology, which began in November of 2012. Another notable book on the subject is Willie Lay's Exotic Animals, which was also published in 1959. Lay was best known for his writings on rocketry and related topics, but he was trained in paleontology and wrote a number of books about animals. Lay's collection, Exotic Zoology, is of some interest to cryptozoology as he discusses the yeti and sea serpents, as well as relic dinosaurs. The book entertains the possibility that some legendary creatures like the Surush, the Unicorn, or the Cyclops might be based on actual animals, though misrepresentation of the animals and or the remains is a possible cause. Also notable is the work of British zoologist and cryptozoologist Carl Schuker, who has published 12 books and countless articles on numerous cryptozoological subjects since the mid-1980s. Now that will bring us to the end of the cast. It brought us to roughly 20 minutes, which is where I kind of wanted to keep it. One thing I do want to mention before I completely wrap this up, though, is that a lot of these cryptozoological creatures are mistaken, especially ones from history. They are actual animals that exist that a lot of people know about in the world, just not in certain regions. And I have to mention the monkey of Hartlepool in England. Now, in case you don't know what the monkey of Hartlepool is, it's a funny, funny story. Back in, say, the 1800s, the early 1800s, around the Napoleonic Wars, a French ship docked in the town of Hartlepool in England. Now, the only thing that they found aboard was a monkey, but they did not know what a monkey was. It's not like it was widely accepted that there were primates walking around in other parts of the world, especially in a small fishing village or town like Hartlepool. So they assumed that this monkey was a French spy. 
After days of interrogation and torture, the monkey didn't do anything but scream and probably throw stuff at them. Stuff. And so they later hung the monkey for being a traitor or a spy. A French spy is what they thought this monkey was in the long run. Now, of course, later on, the whole town kind of laughs at it and they kind of make a whole satirical thing about it. But it still goes to show that misinformation or being ill-informed is just one of the ways that we misrepresent things and how we come up with false conclusions. Still happens today. I mean, there's a whole thing about quote-unquote fake news that goes around, and some of it is legitimately fake. You hear about fake celebrity deaths all the time or UFO sightings, and it's nothing more than like the reflection of a toaster in a window or something. People who are misinformed tend to jump to supernatural conclusions, which is what a lot of cryptozoology is, in my opinion, anyway. Of course, I do believe in some things. I do think that there are a race of missing link-type creatures like Bigfoot or Sasquatch out there. And people say, well, we would have found them by now, but what if they don't want to be found or they don't want to be seen? Think about it. Think if there's only a small number of them and they don't reproduce all that often. There's only three or four tribes, say, in North America, and they only reproduce, say, once every three or four years, maybe like a human. Maybe they're very close to humans and they don't have a massive litter like, say, puppies do. Maybe they only can give birth once in their life and it really dwindles the numbers down. Maybe they die upon giving birth. It's hard to say. Now, I imagine it's difficult to find them for one reason, and it's really, really simple. Say there's 10 of them in all of the forests of North America. That'd be like dropping your best friend in the middle of Toronto with nobody else around, all the buildings available to him to hide in, and you have to find him. He knows you're looking for him, and I'd like to imagine that these creatures are kind of privy to us, and they don't want to be found, so they hide when they hear something or smell something, such as a human. So your friend can see you, you can't see him, and you have to find him in acres upon acres upon acres of easily hideable land. Now try to find him. I think that's just kind of how the whole thing works, and that's my argument for when people say, if we would have found them, we would have found them. Plain and simple. It's not that plain and simple. But that does, like I said, wrap it up. I'm not going to go on any more tangents. That's it. If you want to come back next week to hear about some actual cryptids like Bigfoot or Loch Ness, you're going to have to come back. And that's what we call in the broadcasting industry cliffhanging. Kind of lure you back in. That's the first thing you learn in broadcasting school. Keep the listener wanting more so they come back. So I do hope I see you next week. Until then, keep your eyes out for something creepy in the dark.